of us in Matthew chapter 5. Now, you can remember uh, why that's so important. It is because so many people throughout the centuries in different parts of the world, they have the Sermon on the Mount wrong. Haven't we established that before? They have the Sermon on the Mount wrong. So many, many people think that what we've got here is a manifesto for society to live a better life. So lots of people, you'll maybe even hear this, depending on what church you might attend. Many people will think that the Sermon on the Mount is a to-do list for natural man in order to win favor with Almighty God. So do you see the idea, friend? Do you follow the idea? That lots of people will think, right, what do I have to do in this world to please God? I know, I'll read the Sermon on the Mount, and oh, I've got to be angry less often, and I've got to tell fewer lies, and if I do that, I will be able to pull myself up by the bootstraps, and I will be able to win favor with the Almighty God, and when I die, I will be ushered into heaven. You see the idea? Many people viewing this as a manifesto for better ways of living. Well, hopefully, hopefully, you understand and appreciate that is not what we've got in front of us this morning. You remember, don't you, what Jesus does right at the beginning of the sermon? He takes his people aside. This is a sermon for people who are poor in spirit. This is a sermon for people who have received from God new life. This is a sermon for people who understand that no matter how hard they try, no matter what they do, they will never be able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. This is a sermon for people who understand that is why the Lord Jesus Christ has come to live that God-pleasing life that we simply cannot ever live. And if you recognize that, my friend, you recognize what Jesus is doing in this sermon. What's he doing? He's not giving us a manifesto to society for a better way to live. What is he doing? He is unveiling the life the Christian ought to live in response to and out of gratitude for the salvation that Jesus Christ has already won for you and me, his people. Gratitude to God. So we are back in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. What about this section? Small section, wasn't it? Short reading. What about this section uh, this morning? Well, I have said this to you, I don't know how many times, countless times, I have said that the Sermon on the Mount is a countercultural sermon. I've said that, haven't I? I don't know. 20 times. Countercultural sermon. Well, this morning, hmm, we're going to consider the lack of rights that Christians have our rights, our lack of rights. And as we consider that together, one alive, you're going to see how countercultural this is. You're going to see this morning just how the standards of the kingdom of God stand opposed to the standards of our society and our world. Now, in just a moment or two, we're going to look at a first point from this section, which is Jesus' principle. That's our first heading this morning. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you to join me as we pray and as we ask God for guidance. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so grateful for the Sermon of the Mount. We are thankful that it shows us you. It shows us your heart, your desire for your people. 
Lord God, we know that as we come to it, we are so often convicted of our sin. We do ask that that might again be the case today, that we might rest all the more in the Lord Jesus. Lord God, we want to see Christ. We want to see Jesus. We want to hear from you. In fact, Lord God, we need to hear from you this morning. So we do ask that you would renew our minds, that you would work in our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you got the first point, didn't you? Jesus principle. That's what we're going for, Jesus principle. Now, if you got your Bible open, you are going to need your Bible open. And if you look at verse 38, you're going to see a very, very familiar phrase. It's familiar, is it? You see it, 38, chapter 5? Jesus speaks about, do you see what it is? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That might be familiar to you. It is familiar, isn't it? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We've all heard that. Might be familiar to you, but to understand what Jesus is saying about it, I think there's a few little hoops we've got to jump through here. First one's kind of obvious. We've got to understand what that meant in its Old Testament context, don't we? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Because if you've been here for the sermon series, you know what the Pharisees have done in other instances, don't you? That they've taken something from the law and they've distorted it and twisted it, haven't they? But that's not the case in a way here. That phrase is taken straight out of the Mosaic Code. So what does that mean? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What did it mean in the Old Testament? Well, that law is called, you ready for this? It is called the Lex Talionis. Or the law of the claw, which by any measure is the coolest name for anything there's ever been, right? The law of the claw. And you look at it and immediately you see that it's got the idea of exact retribution in view, doesn't it? Isn't it exact retribution? It's an eye for what? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, exact retribution. Now, it might sound a little bit archaic to us and to our ear, Right, does it? I don't know. Let me just give you a couple of reasons why God implemented Lex Talionis. The first thing God was doing was restraining revenge. Friend, do you see why an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth would restrain revenge? Let's take an example, shall we? I'm going to use you, or you put yourself in these shoes, right? Imagine this week you hear that somebody has been saying stuff about you, nasty stuff behind your back. It's horrible when that happens, isn't it? Let's say that you find that happening this week. Somebody's been saying something nasty behind you, behind your back. What do you want to do? Or what does your wicked heart want to do? They're saying something horrible about you behind your back. You want to say something horrible about but then behind their back. Isn't that right? Well, what does our wicked heart want to do? If they're going to say something bad about us to one person, we're going to tell the world something horrible about them. Isn't that how we respond? Let's say somebody steals something from you. What do you want to do? You want to, your wicked heart wants to steal something from them. But if they've stolen your bike, you're going to steal their car. Like, do you see it? You want to go overboard. Isn't that right? We've got a tendency not just to seek revenge. We've got a tendency to go to town. And what does God do with his Old Testament people? What does he do? He implements Lex Talionis. He implements a law that demands there must only be Equal justice. Do you see how he's restraining revenge? He's saying, no, it's not I. 
head for an eye. You're not allowed to do that. You see, he says to his people, it's not an eye for a tooth. It must only be an eye for an eye. It must only be a tooth for a tooth. You see, it's restraining revenge. But then there's another side to what God was doing. He was restraining the idea of personal revenge. So you see that phrase, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I wonder if you could locate it in scripture. It's found in Exodus 21. Does that mean anything to you? Think of it. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Exodus 21. You don't have to look it up. That means that this principle from God was found in a section of scripture that dealt with civil law. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was a law for the judges. It was a law for the nation of Israel. It was a law for the law courts. Do you see how genius that is? Do you see what God is doing? He's saying in this principle to the people, you are not allowed to take the law into your own hands. He's saying, Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is not for you to enact. You don't get to do this. God's saying, no, this is part of the civil law. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is for the courts and the courts alone. So you got the idea, right? We know what this means. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. God's restraining revenge in the Old Testament. Okay, where do we need to go? Right, you work with me here. What do we need to do next? Like if you've been here at part of the sermon series, where are we in the Sermon on the Mount? Think about last week. I've said to you, antithesis sections, haven't I? So what's Jesus doing at this point? He is contrasting his teaching with the distortions of the law that the Pharisees were putting out. Isn't that what Jesus is doing? He's contrasting truth of the law with this distortion, perversions that the Pharisees were making. So where do we need to go? If we understand the law in its original context, where do you and I need to go? We need to work out, well, what were the Pharisees doing? Like, how were they perverting Lex Talionis? What were they saying about this? Well, you ready for this? This, this, you, this will grab you like the law of the claw. She'd grab you. You ready for it? By the time Jesus was speaking here, the Pharisees were breaking both purposes of the law. Now, you think about that. You think about it very clearly. So the Pharisees were not only ignoring the principle of exact retribution. Do you know what they were doing instead? They were very often, the Pharisees, seeking financial retribution for offenses against them. So they're not only ignoring that great principle from God, you're ready for the second side of it, they were doing that themselves. So they were taking, Lex Talionis, the Pharisees, they were taking it out of the law courts. They were taking it into the street. They were acting on this themselves. Do you see how incredible this is. Please tell me you're following me. Please tell me you see how serious it is. The Pharisees were promoting personal revenge. Listen to what I'm saying to you. They were teaching personal, they were teaching the very thing that God implemented Lex Talionis to prevent. The Pharisees were taking Lex Talionis and using it to, to, to preach the opposite. Now, Surely you can see, even from a cursory glance at Matthew 5 here, you can see that Jesus is opposed to the Pharisees. So what is the third hoop we've got to jump through? Come on. If we've got the Old Testament context, we've seen what the Pharisees are doing with it, perverting it. What's the last thing we've got to do here? 
We need to know what Jesus is saying to you and to me. And so I'm asking you, look at it. Let's look. Boys and girls, you look at it too. Verse 39. Let's have a look. What does Jesus say? So the Pharisees are exacting personal revenge, teaching personal revenge. Jesus says, I see to you. Now, you ready for these words? I'm telling you, this is it. This is your sermon. These few words here, right? This is everything. This is what Christ is saying to us. Get that. Memorize the words as we read it. This is the sermon here. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's the centerpiece of this sermon. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, in a moment, we're going to think about applications of that that Jesus gives us. First of all, you and I have to work out what on earth does that mean, right? We have to try to get to grips with this principle. So let me just say one or two things about this idea here. Do not resist the one who is evil. The first thing I want to say to you is this. It has nothing to do with the devil. And I know, because you said it to me, that some of you think that it is to do with the devil. And so you may be thinking, oh, do not resist the evil one. Oh, this is an instruction not for us to stand by, to yield, and, and to, you know, not to resist Satan. Well, maybe you noticed if you read it carefully, Jesus doesn't say, do not resist the evil one. He says to us, do not resist the one who is evil. The focus is not on Satan in this portion of Scripture. The focus is on an aggressor to ourselves. The focus is on our fellow man. Make sure you get that. Second thing that we have to brush away is that that there is not a call for all-out pacifism. (laughs) Okay? And believe me when I tell you that is how it has been understood by literary figures, religious figures in the 20th century especially. They've understood. And do you see what they're thinking? I wonder if you can see what they're thinking. Do not resist the one who is evil. Ah! So when the next Hitler arises or the next Saddam Hussein arises or the next Stalin whoever it might be what what's the Christian response to that do not resist the one who is evil so they will say to us ah the Christian response is to stand idly by well surely you see the folly in that do you and you must have noticed nowhere there does Jesus deny the principle of lex talionis nowhere you understand this is not a call for governments for nations to stand idly by and watch injustice unfold. No, I reiterate to you this. This is for you. This is about your personal response to a personal aggressor. You follow that? And if we brush those two things away, now it gets difficult. Because now we get to the actual meaning of this. And this shakes me. And I'm sure we'll shake you. What is Jesus calling for in the Sermon of the Mount? Christian friend, listen to me. In the face of opposition, the Christian is to yield. That is the nature of this call. This is a demand for the believer to shrink back when we are opposed. Isn't that something? That when we are reviled, the believer is not to fight back. When we are reviled, now listen to this, we are not to fight for our rights as a Christian. 
We're actually, instead, out of love for our aggressor, demonstrating trust in the justice of God. What is Christ calling for? That the believer, when opposed, that we do not resist. Now, immediately there's a million questions we've got. Don't you think so? And before we answer one or two, I just want to pose this to you. I want to ask you this. Do you not now agree with me? about what I said earlier on in the sermon. Do you not agree that this, perhaps more than ever, is the most countercultural thing you will ever, ever encounter? Isn't it countercultural? I mean, I'm, I'm asking you, like, what do you hear when you put your ear to the ground in London? Like, what does our society say to you? What does it scream? Our society is all about a personer, a person's individual rights. Isn't that our culture? Like screaming for our rights. And it's all about what we are entitled to. I want my rights. I want my entitlement. So don't you dare get in the way. And what do we find in Matthew chapter 5? The Lord Jesus Christ put before you this demand that that is not the Christian way. That because an all-out pursuit of our rights will damage, it will, I promise, damage our Christian witness, what happens when we're opposed? What are you called to do, Christian friends, when you are personally opposed? You are called by Christ to yield. So we see the principle, okay? Second thing we've got to pay attention to here is Jesus' application, okay? So we've got the principle, we yield Jesus' application is the second thing. Okay. Am I alone in thinking this is a drastic principle from our Lord? I don't think I am. As I've studied this, it just gets more and more shocking to me. Now, if you're in the same boat, on the same page as me just now, and you find this shocking, what's the next thing that you want to know if you're a believer? Come on. Surely you want to know, Lord Jesus How do I live this out? Like, what does this principle look like for me in London in 2019? I'm I'm supposed to yield when I'm opposed? What does that look like at work, at home? What what does this mean? Aren't you asking that? Can I say you should be asking that question? Well, guess what? God is way ahead of us. And as we carry on in this little portion of Scripture... What we find is what John Stott called, uh, he, he called them four little cameos. So what you find as you carry on here is Jesus apply this principle for you. Jesus does the legwork. He does it all for us. He applies this in four specific areas. Okay. Now, because this, I think, is shocking, this principle, this I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I want you to follow very closely the four applications. So you're going to need your Bible on your lap. Everyone's going to need that. Boys and girls, at least make sure you can see, because we all know that if you put a Bible on your lap, it's going to fall on the floor, isn't it? So if you got that, we'll look at the four applications. Friends, look at the first one. We've got stuff about retaliation rights. Look at verse 39. Verse 39. So we're crying to Christ Jesus. We long to live in a way that pleases you, Jesus. And you're saying not to resist. And we're saying, why? What does that look like? And then read these words Jesus says to us. 
Okay, you want you want to hear the application? If anyone slaps you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Jesus says to us, then turn to him the other. Like, come on, that's yeah, I'm not alone now. This is incredibly challenging for every single one of us in this room, right? Turn the other cheek. But I'm going to be really bold and probably face the consequences from some of you later on. Because I'm going to suggest that this is especially challenging for the men in the congregation. I'm not saying exclusively challenging for the men. Do not get me wrong. I think, though, it is especially challenging uh, for the men. Because, guys, is it not right that we live in a weird time? We do. We live in a time of controversial Gillette adverts, uh, don't we? We live in a time when what constitutes masculinity is debated and argued about nearly on a daily basis. And maybe it is the case that the men in here sitting in this room are saying, but I've not got a big problem with this idea of physical retaliation. So you're thinking, guys, maybe you're, you're saying, well, it's the law of the school playground, Andy. You know, if somebody punches me, I'm punching them. And they're, they're getting it back. You know, somebody comes at me, kicks me, I'm kicking back. I know that some of the Scotsmen in here are probably thinking along those lines. Thinking there's no problem with this, Andy. There's no problem with the physical retaliation at all. And I have to say back to you that that quite simply is not the kingdom way. And surely, Christian man in here, surely you see why not. If when we are attacked, we focus all our energy and all of our efforts and physically retaliate to that person, what happens? A gospel opportunity is missed. If you are focused on physical retaliation, getting by that person, a gospel, a glorious open door at the gospel, it passes you by. What we do, we are to turn to the cheek. Okay, back to the Bible. Next one, verse 40. Let's see it. We're still seeing Jesus, but if we're not physically attacked, what happens? Look at the next one. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Uh, let him have your, what is it? Do you see? Let him have your cloak as well. Now that might se- seem a bit strange to you. The idea, does it? The idea of a cloak standing almost representing a personal's, uh, a person's possessions, a cloak. But what you've got to understand to, to fully appreciate what Jesus is saying there is that the cloak was everything in the ancient world. The cloak The word that is used there is the inner garment, the long inner garment in the Middle East. And it was actually, it's actually specified in the Bible. It's specified in Exodus that that cloak was an inalienable right that a person had. Like a person had the right, the cherished right to own this cloak. It was a cherished, cherished possession in the ancient world. And doesn't that then make this all the more incredible? Doesn't it, especially in our age where we all know our legal rights, that should we, should you even be opposed in a court of law, 
What is the standard from Jesus Christ if you are sued? Jesus is saying we should not be focusing all of our attention on defending ourselves. We've got to be willing to allow our accuser even more than what he's suing us for. And wait a minute, it's a cloak. We've got to be willing to hand over and allow the person to have our most cherished possessions, our inalienable rights. Then you get to the personal one. Look at verse 41 with me. Verse 41, can you see it? Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him the second mile. Is that, is that quite a difficult one for us to, to get our heads wrapped around? The idea of somebody forcing us to travel? And the idea is actually really, really simple. Under Roman law in the first century world, a Roman soldier could enlist an ordinary person to carry their baggage. So you're walking along the road in Jerusalem in the first century world, totally feasible, totally legal for a Roman soldier to grab you by the, the scruff of the collar and say to you, right, you are going to carry my armor. You're going to carry all my baggage for this set distance. You understand? It's quite a simple idea. Now, you come back at me, don't you, here and say, there's no Roman soldiers out there. Like, there's, there's no Roman soldiers in Aldersgate Street this afternoon just joggers (laughs) no roman soldiers don't you see the parallels here i mean isn't the relevance take the children like think about that children being ah forced to go places by their parents under duress you know forced to do all these chores and go places visit people they do not do not want to do that what about you if you're an employee under duress, forced to do this work that you don't think is fair, being mistreated at work, being forced to travel and work, and you don't want to do it. It's not fair. And isn't it absolutely incredible, the standard that Jesus calls for from his people? Because he says, even when your movement is defined for you, in those words, even when our movement is defined for us by an aggressor, Jesus Christ calls for us as his people to yield to that. And if that's not challenging, then the last one is. Look at the last one. Look at verse 42 with me. So we've seen retaliation rights, legal rights, personal rights. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow. Now, do you think that seems a little bit different in tone or dynamic, that one? Do you? It is not. It's the very same idea that when there is legitimate need in front of us, Friends, we are not to be concerned with our personal personal rights. If we are begged, if there is pleading with us, the question, if it's legitimate need, our question is not, what can I get from this? What is in this situation for me? That even when our material possessions are in view, even when we are being pleaded with, what is it all about? It is about non-resistance. It is about yielding. And surely when we put all those four pieces of the jigsaw together, surely we're all on the same page. Because I'm asking you, Christian friends, are you not amazed at, and also when you look back on your life, convicted of sin by Jesus' teaching there, are you not? What Christ puts at your door here is this through-going, comprehensive call for you, Christian friend, to die to yourself. That's what this is about. To die to our rights, to die to self, 
and to do so for the glory of God. So we see Jesus' principle. We also see Jesus' applications. And then we end, we close with a third thing, Jesus' example. Because I have a worry. I am a worrier. And I have a worry. This is it. I worry that such is the challenging nature of this teaching from Jesus, that despite his four applications, my worry is that we still go from this building this morning and we still ask, how on earth do I put this principle in action? Is that going to happen? You know, we ju- if we just leave it like that, we end, we have the benediction and we, you know, we sing. Are you going to go out, are we going to go out into the world, into London, and this call for non-resistance, are we just going to throw up our hands and say, I don't know how to live this out. I, even with the applications, I'm not sure how to put this into practice. To ensure that that does not happen, and it will not happen, to ensure it does not happen, I have got something to, to ask you to do, okay? It's very short, and I don't often ask you to do it. But can I ask you to turn back to the first reading that we had in First Peter chapter 2? It'll just take us, we're closing with this. We end the sermon with this. So it's on page 1015. It's First Peter 2, towards the end of the chapter, on page 1015. Now, you know, if you know this portion of Scripture, that Peter is talking about what? He's talking about Christ's great work on the cross, isn't he? Sin-bearing. So Peter is talking about Jesus taking the sins of his people on his shoulders. Now, look at what you learn in verse 23. Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, what is his response? He did not revile in return. The NIV has it like this. Some of you are using the NIV. That when Jesus was reviled, he did not retaliate. Now, we can all see, all of you can see, can't you, why we've gone there. You can all see that this principle of Matthew 5 in action, can't you? Jesus is living out that principle perfectly there, isn't he? But this is what I want you to get. Look at verse 21. So yes, Christ suffered and he did not revile, did not retaliate. What was part of the reason that he didn't retaliate? Do you see in verse 21? He did not retaliate partly to set you an example. Now, isn't that the most helpful thing you could ever imagine? Because now we don't go from LCPC this morning scratching our heads. Like now we go out into the world and if we struggle to think, well, how do I live out this principle of non-resistance? How do I yield? What do you do, Christian friend? You look, first of all, immediately to the cross, don't you? You're struggling to work out, how do I not retaliate? How do I, how do I, how do I not resist? How do I yield? What do you do? You look to Golgotha because there at Calvary, Christ has perfectly modeled this principle for you, giving you a perfect example. And there's something beautiful. There's something overlooked. It's lovely. Because as you think back on those four applications that Jesus has given you, what is true of every single one of those applications? 
that Christ our Lord in his ministry and his suffering and his death has endured every single one of those. Has he not? I mean, Christ throughout his ministry was constantly being pleaded with, wasn't he? Pleaded with for his time, for his presence, pleaded with, begged for his healing. What does Jesus Christ do every time? He gives more than is asked. Then what happened at Gethsemane? The Roman soldiers were there. And they arrest him. And what do the Roman soldiers do? They take Jesus Christ and they force him to walk to the high priest's residence. And what does Jesus later do? What does he do for you? He goes the second mile. And he walks out of Jerusalem to the place of the skull. And what about the legal rights due to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? What about his legal rights? He yields. He does not resist. And in fact, what does he do? He gives over his cloak. His very same word. You see it? He gives it all. His legal rights. He sees them gamble for his garment. And then what is the most obvious of the lot? How did our Lord respond when he was struck across the face? What does he do when the Jews in John 20 strike him? What does he do? For you, he turns the other cheek that the Roman soldiers might do the same. We have no excuse. You cannot leave this place and say, I do not know how to yield, friend. You look to Calvary, you look to the cross, and we live as our Savior lived. And I end with this. Now you listen to me. Listen. At the beginning of this service, beginning of the sermon, I said that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is not for society. It is not for all people. It is a sermon only for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. What question must I end with then? Is the Sermon on the Mount for you? As you sit in this room this morning, is your trust for your eternal salvation and the forgiveness of your sin, is your trust resting only in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it? If not, consider even what you have heard and seen today. Consider what Christ has endured to win his people freedom from their chains and salvation from their sin, and see what you need to do this very moment. Friend, what do you need to do? You need to bow, and to the Lord of hosts, the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to yield. Let's bow our heads before God, and let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for the teaching, for the challenge it is to us. We thank you that your Spirit dwells within us, enabling your people to live in a way that pleases you. But we thank you so much more, Lord Jesus, that you have lived this principle, that though you were reviled, you did not retaliate all that you might set us an example but that you might willingly lay down your life as a sacrifice the sacrifice for your people's sins lord we worship and praise you 
And we pray in your holy and matchless name. Amen.